Our second reading picks up where our first one left off. I'm in Acts chapter 26. I will begin at verse 12. Page 1111, right? 11, it's a memorable page. If you want to follow along. Hear the word of God. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to, and I speak to him boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this hasn't been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray.
Lord God, you have called us from many places and from many different kinds of weeks, and you have called us to, for this hour, step outside of time and to gather in your eternal space with your saints to gather around your unchanging word to sing your praises. Lord, I pray that you might give us the grace to remove ourselves from the cares of our week and to rejuvenate ourselves by being in your presence and by being fed with your word. We pray this day that you would calm the hearts that are agitated, that you would be a balm to those who grieve, that you would strengthen those who feel weak, that you would be security to those who feel uncertain. Lord, our hope is in you. And outside of you, we live lives that are just noise. Our hope is in you. And outside of you, we have no hope. And so this day, as we gather around your word, we pray that you would give us the hope that stands the test of time. And we pray that we would be your people more truly today than we were yesterday. We pray that you would prepare us as well to meet you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Most of you have probably heard that uh, Fred Ungerman passed away this past week. Uh, I guess that was on Thursday that uh, he had passed. Um, we will be having a funeral service for him here on Friday the 22nd. Uh, there will be a visitation uh, beginning at 10 a.m. The service uh, to follow um, at 11 o'clock uh, and then an interment. Uh, after the after the funeral, so I would encourage you to to be here for that service. What I want to do today is actually two different things. I I want you to have the text open in front of you. So if you didn't bring your Bible, uh, I would encourage you to open up the pew Bible to page eleven eleven, uh, and we're going to walk through this. I, I want to walk through some of the highlights of this passage. Um, but then I just want to tag a little sermon on the end uh, of of my comments. So if you open uh, your scripture with me, um, I'm going to begin at verse uh, 23 where uh, Joan read for us. We read uh, there, so on the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes, and the prominent men of the city. Now, as we talked last week, Agrippa is the great-grandson of the Herod who had tried to kill Jesus. He is a Jewish king uh, uh, that is uh, kind of a puppet king under the Roman Empire. Bernice is his sister... And this brother and this sister are apparently living as man and wife. Inconceivable for Jewish people. Uh, Nothing extraordinary for a pagan, however. 
And so King Agrippa and his consort, uh, Bernice, are compromised Jews. They are people of the covenant. They believe in the one true God, but they're living in a worldly way, which is marked most evidently by the adopting of the world's sexual mores. As I mentioned last week, Bernice would go on to become the sexual partner of Titus, who is the general who destroys the temple in Jerusalem. Now perhaps Agrippa and Bernice thought that they were doing a great service to the Jewish people, defending Jewish interests within this larger empire that's going on, but they are a compromised pair. This show that we have just read about today is apparently put on for their uh, entertainment and for their amusement. Governor Festus uh, has called uh, Paul to uh, speak before Agrippa and Bernice. Festus knows that there's no charge against Paul that the emperor would be in any way interested in, but he has to write a report off to the emperor before he ships Paul out. And he knows that Agrippa and Bernice, as Jews, are familiar with these uh, Jewish issues. And so perhaps he thinks that this is some kind of, I don't know, some kind of amusing parlor game. Let's bring in crazy Paul in front of these Jews and let him talk about all of this crazy stuff that Jews are always fighting about. Paul, of course, is a nobody. He's no threat to the empire. But Festus seems to be toying with him, toying with the victim. And it's clear from the passage, well, let me read it for you. This is in verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Must have been a plague on Festus to have to rule these Jews with their strange customs and their strange ideas and fighting over things that just made no sense to the pagans. And so Paul is representative of this kind of stuff that Jews were always fighting about and Perhaps it's really just as a matter of sport that he, Paul, is brought before Agrippa and Bernice to offer his defense. In chapter 26, verse 2, we see Paul opening his defense. He says, in a polite way, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all of the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all of the customs and the controversy of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul, in this defense, is going to appeal to the Jewishness of Agrippa. This is Paul's defense is a defense of a Jew to a Jew rather than uh, than a Roman to a Roman. Paul is not a threat to the Roman Empire, and so his defense has nothing to do with uh, issues of the empire. His defense has everything to do with his relationship to the Jewish faith as it was being played out at that time. And then the testimony begins. And in his testimony, Paul begins to review his own life. In verse 4 we read, My manner of life from my youth 
spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul is settled in his convictions. Paul is serious in his religiosity. This is not some new quirky fling that he's on. He has been settled in his manner of life since he reached the age of accountability. He is a member of the most strict sect within Judaism, as was his father, so it's something that he comes by honestly. Paul's testimony, in some part, is going to be built upon his presentation of his seriousness as a Jew. The Jews are upset with him for sure, but he wants it to be clear that he honors and values the Jewish traditions out of which he has arisen. But let's take a look at the crux of the problem, and that's in verse 6. And now I stand on trial because... And he's going to tell you why he's on trial. Because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship you day and night. For And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. The real cause of this trial... The real complaint of the Jews against Paul is this hope, which he hasn't made explicit here, but let's dig it out where it is more explicit. Let me see if I can get my ESV translation here. Flip back to Acts chapter 23 with me. Because Paul is going to reveal what the hope is and what it is that he's on trial for. Verse 20, uh, chapter 23, verse 6, we read. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul believed in the resurrection as other Pharisees did, but because he had met Jesus, he believed in the resurrection in some kind of special way. What Paul is on trial for is proclaiming the resurrection. Take a look also in Acts 24 and verse 21. Well, let me push it back to verse 20. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. It's important for us as Christians to recognize that the resurrection is fundamental to the faith. No resurrection, no Christianity. 
And the resurrection is not merely a spiritual resurrection. The resurrection is not a metaphorical resurrection. The resurrection is bodily, it's physical. There was a man who was alive, and then he died, and then he stopped being dead. Okay, A dead, a corpse came to life. Not a spirit, a corpse. And those who follow that resurrected corpse, will themselves experience the same thing. Paul's hope was that what had happened to Christ was going to happen to him. That's what he was all in for. He had he had, he had bet the, the farm on this one possibility that he would be raised from the dead. You remember, he's met the resurrected Jesus. He met him on the road to Damascus. Paul, of course, knew about Jesus. We don't know what kind of interaction there was between Paul and Jesus during uh, the natural life of Jesus. Certainly Paul knew about him. And Paul knew that he had been crucified. And Paul knew that he had been stuck into a tomb. And, okay, he disappeared and people were saying that he was resurrected. Who's going to believe that crazy talk? And he persecutes the church that's pronouncing the resurrection. And then one day he himself meets the resurrected man. And at that point, there's just no argument anymore. Okay, We don't need philosophy or theology to deal with what I've seen with my eyes. Now we're just just talking about a historical event. Paul met the resurrected Christ. And then everything changed. His whole life was inverted because of this one event. And then he spends the rest of his time preaching the resurrection. That is the hope that we have as Christians. That we one day will be raised from the dead. Let me jump down to verse 13. And here we have the story, you know, this is, I don't know how many times this is told in scripture, a number of times. But this is the familiar story. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. That shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The description here is of an event that happened in the physical universe. Paul isn't describing a vision or a dream. There are times when people have visions and dreams. And they are described a certain way. Uh, the people who have those visions and those dreams understand them to be a vision and a dream. Okay, I had a dream. I had a dream last night. I had a dream about having gotten up too late to make the early service. All right, this is a this is the pastor's nightmare, right? The, the other dream is I lost my I, I lost my sermon. All right. So, you know, the anxiety dreams of a pastor. The people in scripture who receive dreams and visions, it's described as a dream or a vision. What's happening here is not a dream or a vision. This is something that's happening in the physical universe. And it's also something that's happening to multiple people at the same time. Paul is not alone when this happens. He's traveling with companions. They also see the light and they hear the noise. Now, they don't understand the voice that speaks, but they see the light and they hear the voice. And so we're dealing simply with a historical event. One of the things that confirms for me 
the historical reliability of the gospel accounts is that they were published during a time when other people who might not be on board with the Christian thing were also present. But there are no published denials of the historical claims that are made. Some people might not have jumped on the bandwagon, but there isn't there isn't a minority report that's that's published that says, "Oh no, in fact, what happened was this." All right, you will find clever fellows writing centuries later who want to explain away the simple historical events that are reported in Scripture, but there are no accounts like that from the first century. Okay. It's interesting, the accounts in the, in the, in the New Testament, there about, about 500 people met the resurrected Jesus. Okay, And the accounts of the resurrection were published during the time when many of those people were still alive. If somebody wanted to deny what had happened, you would have seen something in print. And it simply, it simply doesn't happen. This event happens to Paul. Paul repeats it. Nobody comes forward and says, well, you know, I was with Paul on that trip. And here's what really happened. He... You know, and come up with some alternative explanation. It's a historical event. Now, here's what I want you to notice in verse 15. I said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, sir? And the Lord said, Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, how did Paul persecute Jesus? I mean, we don't, we don't know of any direct encounter between Paul and the pre-crucifixion Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, who is Paul persecuting? Paul's persecuting the church. And those who persecute the church persecute Christ. We need to be really clear about this. People who have got the gumption to persecute the church are persecuting the second person of the Trinity. They are persecuting the eternal creator of the universe. All right? The, The injury that we suffer is felt by the master. And the payback will also come from the master for those who persecute the church. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus is big God though. He, uh, he wants to turn Paul around because he's got bigger things for Paul. Here's God's purpose on Paul's, Paul's, Paul's life. But rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose. To appoint you as a servant and a witness to these things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So you recall that Jesus, uh, it's, we don't have any accounts of Paul meeting Jesus before, uh, the death of Jesus. Perhaps he saw something, maybe he was at the, uh, at the fringes of crowds. We're not sure. But certainly Paul met the resurrected Jesus and was schooled by the resurrected Jesus. So Paul's instruction doesn't come from the other apostles. Paul's instruction comes directly from from Jesus himself. And Paul is now going to be called to bear witness to those things. 
But this is, this is just one small piece, a part of a larger, grander uh, plan that God has. Verse 18, we read that. To open, uh, well, 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God has a grand purpose that's going on here. Okay, God is calling to himself a family of people who are sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. It's going to be composed of people who are Jews and people who are Gentiles. Paul is going to play a special role in calling them and opening their eyes so that they turn from the darkness to the light. Paul is a part of God's larger plan that's going on here. God could have used somebody else. He chooses to use him. And there it is. Notice, of course, that the sanctification comes by faith in Christ. The sanctification doesn't come by good works. All right. Now let me read down in verse uh, 19 and 20. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent. There are a number of times when uh, in Scripture we get a thumbnail or encapsulated version of a sermon or the preachment of a particular individual. Paul represents his own preaching in this way, that they should repent and turn to God and keep doing deeds in keeping with repentance. The very beginning of Paul's preachment is about repentance, which should remind you of the very first word that comes out of Jesus' mouth in his preachment, which is repent, which should remind you of John the Baptist's very first word out of his mouth that's recorded for us in Scripture, which is repent. The gospel begins with repentance. The good news begins with bad news, and the bad news is is that you are a sinner bound for hell. You were born that way. Welcome to the world. That's bad news. Now, there are some in the church who will say, oh, you don't want to lead with bad news. I mean, that'll turn people off. That'll turn people away. We don't want all that repentance and sin stuff in our church. What we want is love and acceptance. John the baptizer, Jesus the Christ, the Apostle Paul, all begin their preachment with the word repent. May we always do that. Some of you are probably familiar with uh, H. Richard Niebuhr. Uh, He taught at... uh, Yale University, uh, Yale Divinity School for a long time is an American theologian uh, of the liberal sort. He would be on on the liberal uh, side of the of the spectrum there. And in 1937, he wrote a very penetrating um, examination of 
American culture, American religious culture. The book is called Kingdom of God in America. I would encourage you to read it. Uh, it's about kind of mainline Christianity, uh, you know, in, in the self-satisfied uh, United States. Um, and in this book, he uh, his most quoted uh, sentence is, a, is, a, is his characterization of the liberal church, of the liberal mainline church. He said, or he wrote, a God, this is his characterization of, of liberal Christianity, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Nothing offensive in that kind of preaching. I mean, no bloody cross, no sin or condemnation. You're just all part of the kingdom of God. It is a kind of bloodless Christianity that makes you wonder why they're still in the business. Which reminds me of Richard Rorty, who was the guy that I was going to do my dissertation with at the University of Virginia, a postmodern philosopher, not a believer. Uh, Richard Rorty, in, in an interview, uh, said this. He said, I'm delighted that liberal theologians do their best to do what Pio Nano said shouldn't be done, try to accommodate Christianity to modern science, modern culture, and democratic society. If I were a fundamentalist Christian, I'd be appalled by the wishy-washiness of the liberal version of the Christian faith. But since I'm a non-believer who is frightened by the barbarity of many fundamentalist Christians, I welcome theological liberalism. Maybe liberal theologians will eventually produce a version of Christianity so wishy-washy that no one will be interested in being a Christian anymore. The good news begins with the bad news about who we are. We are fallen people and we cannot get ourselves up. This is why we need Christ. And thanks be to God, Christ has offered to us. I see I'm running out of time. Well, let me preach the sermon then. In this passage, there are three takes on what our hope and what our confidence is. Agrippa, King Agrippa, and Bernice find their hope and their confidence in political power and in cultural influence. They have managed to sell themselves bodily to the Romans. Oh, they get to ride around in, you know, carriages and they get to sit on thrones, but they are compromised because they've sold out to the world. Agrippa and Bernice, I think, probably thought that they were doing the Jewish people a favor, protecting the interests of the Jews within the empire. In reality, they were hand in glove with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. There are those whose hope and confidence is in power, particularly in politics. And then there are the Pharisees. The Pharisees' hope is in their own righteousness, in the works of the law, Paul himself 
repents of this kind of righteousness. I'm going to read for you uh, Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews, as of the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's the hope of the Pharisee, right? He had it all in spades, okay? He is he he is the preeminent Jew. He's the preeminent Pharisee, and in that he had placed his hope but then things change. But whatever I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. So there are three options. We can believe in politics. Our hope and our confidence might come in in politics and ruling the world. Or our hope might be pharisaical, to follow the law really carefully, to do a really good job, to be born into the right religious family. Or the third hope, which is the hope of, of the Paul who had met the resurrected Christ. The confidence is in Christ alone. Paul knows that in himself he's not worth anything. But that in Christ, wow, he's got the resurrection coming, he's got glorification coming, he's got eternity in heaven with all of the saints coming. Where is your hope? Is it in power and control in this world? Is it it in your religiosity? Or is it in your humble reliance upon Christ alone? Let us pray. Father God, seal to our hearts the truths of your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please join me in confessing what it is that we believe as Christian using the words of the Heidelberg Catechism.